The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So being that this is most likely the last time, I'm pretty sure it's the last time that I'll be preaching when uh, Pastor Jim is present, uh, I thought it would be uh, nice to share a fond memory I have of him. Uh, With the exception of those who are just visiting, or if you're very new, uh, I'd be very surprised if you don't know that Pastor Jim is a huge opera fan. Huge opera fan. You can usually hear his very, you know, strong voice back there singing during worship. Uh, Back in March of this year, uh, Monday, March 4th to be exact, I went to my very first opera with Pastor Jim, and that was Aida. He opted to drive, and on the ride there, as well as when we got there, uh, we spoke about his family growing up, marriage life, his early experiences with the Massapequa Church of God, uh, preaching, and believe it or not, Beyonce. (laughs) Yes, Beyonce did come up in the conversation. But Aida was amazing. Um, The architecture and the acoustics of the opera house were phenomenal. Uh, But the thing that I hold on to the most from that night are those conversations. Uh, To him, we were probably just simply two guys in the same church talking. Uh, But to me, it was an opportunity to share in something that he found so much joy in and to spend some quality time with a seasoned believer and shepherd that I love and respect and to glean any wisdom I could from his life as a husband, father, and pastor. And I'll always cherish that. Thanks for that, Jim. So there were a few firsts for me on that very night, on that, on that night of, of March 4th. And it was my first time hanging out with Pastor Jim, of course. It was the first time I saw a live opera. And it was the first time uh, that I went to the world-famous Metropolitan Opera House. Now, even though that was significant for me, I highly doubt that I'll be mentioned in their historical record um, over there at the Met. But there is a first that I'm sure will be remembered there. And that's September 16th, 1966. Pastor Jim might know what that is. But that's when Anthony and Cleopatra was performed for the opening of the new Metropolitan Opera House. Anthony and Cleopatra is an opera based on a Shakespearean play of the same name. It's the tragic love story of the complex relationship between Mark Anthony, the famous Roman politician and general, and Cleopatra, the renowned Egyptian queen. Now, their story starts in 41 B.C. in a city just off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, a province that's now called Mersin in the country of Turkey. So it's in Mersin, Turkey. Just about 45 years later, not too long after the birth of Jesus, just right around 4 or 5 AD or so, the story of the subject of this sermon 
starts in that very same city. I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia. Mersin, Turkey is modern day Tarsus. And the person making that declaration in Acts 22, verse 3, is Paul the Apostle, also known as Saul of Tarsus. So what do we know about Saul of Tarsus? Well, based on Acts 22, we know that he was a Jew and he was born in Tarsus, a Roman province. So he's a Jew ethnically and he's Roman by birth and citizenship. He's a Jewish Roman, much like I am a Haitian American. My parents are Haitian and that is my ethnicity, but I was born in America and hold my citizenship here. Saul goes on to say in Acts 22 that he was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. And when he says this city, he's referring to Jerusalem. And it is in Jerusalem that Saul was taught the law by Gamaliel, one of the premier teachers or rabbis of his day. Lastly, he says that he was zealous for God. This zeal manifested in two ways. For one, he knew the law like the back of his hand. In Philippians 3, verse 5, he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. He had a Ph.D. in the laws of the Old Testament. Secondly, he would do whatever it took to preserve and defend the law, even if it meant the capture imprisonment and death of anyone who proclaimed any teaching that opposed or even seemed to oppose the law. In other words, he was extremely religious and legalistic. So what do we know about Saul of Tarsus? He was a Jewish or Hebrew Roman man with a Pharisaical knowledge of the law and a zeal to preserve and protect it at all costs. I'll say that one more time. He was a Jewish or Hebrew Roman man with a Pharisaical knowledge of the law and a zeal to preserve and protect it at all costs. Now, Saul's first appearance in the Bible is at the stoning of Stephen. The witnesses laid down their garments at his feet, as it says in Acts 7. But please don't confuse this with coat check. You know what coat check is, right? So coat check isn't as common as it used to be, but at certain restaurants, performance halls, wedding venues, or other places like these, you have the option of leaving your coat with someone so that you're not holding it in your arms or lap or dripping it over your chair. And they give you a ticket to retrieve your coat after the event. Saul's role here at Stephen's execution is not the same thing as coat check. The understanding of this passage is that Saul was supervising and condoning the brutal killing of Stephen. Acts 8 and 1 confirms this by saying that Saul approved of his execution. The chapter then goes on to say, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But but why? Why is Saul so committed to ravaging the church? Other than his personal motivations, 
to uphold the law, why else, what else is putting a battery in his back to do what he's doing? And Acts 2, verses 42 and 47 gives us a bit of the answer. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and, distribu and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So how does this show why Saul will be so set against the church. Well, let's break it down. For one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching was that God was made man, Jesus. Their teaching was that he lived a perfect and sinless life. Their teaching was that he fulfilled the law, something that even the most devout Pharisee could not do. Their teaching was that Jesus was unjustly seized, given an unfair trial, and shamefully crucified, hanging naked on a cross just outside the city gates. And he died. Their teaching was that when Jesus died, he took on the weight and burden of the sins of all those who would come to believe in him, thereby satisfying God's justice. But it didn't end there. The apostles' teaching continued to say that after three days, Jesus rose again in power and in glory. Their teaching was that he went back to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Their teaching was that the only way to be saved was to come to Christ in faith. Their teaching was that no works of the law could make us right before God. The apostles' teaching was the gospel. So if the gospel is true, then the religious leaders would lose power and influence. The second point is, that all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So not only was the gospel being preached, the Holy Spirit was doing amazing things through the apostles. Healing the blind, lame, deaf, and dumb. The Holy Spirit even enabled the apostles to speak in the language of the people in the areas they traveled to so that they could transmit the gospel in the tongue they had never spoken. In other words, there was the supernatural power behind this. This wasn't a magic show like Simon the magician had thought. Three, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and, dist and distributing the, pro the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Whatever this was, from the religious leader's perspective, it was bringing people closer together than even the law ever had. 
And if there is a unified mass of people with one mindset, they could grow in power and possibly even revolt against them. The fourth point, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So every day the church was growing. Every day people who once held on to their traditional Jewish beliefs who are waiting for a Messiah to come in the fashion of King David or Solomon forsook their ways for the way, the way of the cross, the way of Christ. So this is what Saul has in mind when we encounter him in Acts 9. This first verse of this passage is only the fourth time we see his name in the New Testament. And Acts 9 verses 1 to 9 says this, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. The first verse of this passage says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was on a, on a war path. Now, that phrase, breathing threats and murder, is to say that this is what he lived to do, to murder those who oppose the law. You might be familiar with the song, This is the Air I Breathe by Michael Smith. I think you may have. If you've been in church long enough, you probably know the song. This is the air I breathe, right? This is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me, right? So that is to say that the indwelling Holy Spirit gives us life. Without him, we have no life. God, the Spirit, is the air we breathe. But for Saul, murder was the air he breathed. He inhaled hate and he exhaled persecution. What he does next is very interesting to me, though. It says that he went to the high priest to ask for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any Christians there, he would have the OK to capture them and bring them back to Jerusalem. And I find this interesting for two reasons. For one, the fact that Saul had to ask the high priest meant that there was order. There was a hierarchy. After all, he asked the high priest. This seeking out of the high priest meant that this murderous hunt after the followers of the way was sanctioned by the top religious figure in all of Jerusalem. 
the letters are almost like a search warrant from a judge. And, I'm, and I know you've seen this before on a TV show. And Dave, I hope I'm, this is right. I'm not sure if this is how it happens really in cop world. But this, 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 this roll with me, right? So, okay. All right. So a detective has a hunch about a suspect. She's investigating and she wants to search the suspect's apartment, but she needs a warrant to do that. Okay. She goes to a judge, pleads her case, and the judge grants the warrant. And when the detective storms the apartment of the suspect, she shows the warrant as proof that she is there under the authority of a higher officer of the law. The plan was for Saul to go into Damascus and present these letters to the synagogues so that they would know he was under the authority of the high priest and to not disrupt or impede his snatching up and imprisonment of the Christian men and women there. Secondly, even in Saul's murderous rage, he still submits to the protocol of coming before the high priest for approval. You would think that he'd be so fired up that he would just go off like a renegade and take matters into his own hands. But he doesn't do that. He takes the time to humbly submit to the religious order, the religious system for its blessing on what he's about to do. Now, I believe that this shows us where Saul's heart and affections really lie. He is completely resting in his religion. The law is his Lord. The statutes of the law is what brings him peace. He worships at the altar of the law so much so that even his innermost desires are submitted to it. This is the essence of religion. Now, this was all technically my introduction because we haven't really gotten into the meat of the text just yet. But let's just try to dive into it now. And I have three points to walk you through today, but I've come up with a sentence that should help you to remember them. And that sentence is, why am I blind suddenly? Can you say it with me? Why am I blind suddenly? Okay. The three points are wrapped up in that in that question. The first point is why. Second point is blind. Can you guess the third one? Suddenly. Correct. Okay. My first point, why? So from the passage, we see that as Saul is heading to Damascus, a 130-mile journey from Jerusalem, a light shines from heaven, and a voice, which we quickly learn is Jesus' voice, says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The repeating of Saul's name is a way to display emotion or to place an emphasis on it. We see Jesus do this in a number of times in scripture, but I'll just name a few. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus says this while lamenting over Jerusalem. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Luke 10, verses 41 and 42 But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And in Mark 15, 34, probably the most well-known example of this. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So it adds emphasis. So now to the question, but I want you to think about this first. Why does God ask questions? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he's God. He knows everything. He is omniscient. He can't learn anything new or discover something at all. So why does he ask questions? In Genesis, after Adam and Eve fell, fell, God comes to Adam with a question. He says, where are you? Now, are we really going to believe that God didn't know where Adam was? Of course not, right? So there has to be another purpose behind the question. Adam, where are you? Where are you now? You were once together with me in sweet communion, and you had everything you could ever need, but where are you now? The question is not for God's sake. It's for Adam's sake. Now Adam has to dwell on his state. All the parents in here know this very well. Very, very well. And I guarantee you do. And if you don't believe me, I'll prove it to you now. (laughs) So you told your toddler over and over not to play with the remote. Okay? So they go away for a little bit. They steal away and... You realize, you know, it's been kind of quiet for a little while. Let me just check in the other room and see what's going on. Lo and behold, the remote's in their hand. And now they've also turned the TV on. Okay? So you watch them for a few seconds, and you kind of creep up behind them slowly. And you say, what are you doing? Right? You know what they're doing. That question is not for you. It's for them. So they know what's up. Right? Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Yes, those Christians you are locking up and killing, they're my church. They're my body. If you touch them, then you've touched me. Why, Saul? What is your motive? What is your aim? What is causing you to act this way? Why? The biggest mistake you can make when you read this is to think that Saul is on an island all by himself. I assure you, he is not. And we don't have to go outside of this church to find people just as guilty as Saul is here. I would even say you don't have to come out of your seat to find somebody as guilty as Saul is here. You may not be dragging and stoning Christians to death. You may not be hunting down Christian men and women to imprison them. But you persecute Christ in your own way. You malign Christ in your own way. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We lust. We hate. We avoid. We're lazy. We're selfish. We're racist. We're prejudiced. We're impatient. We're unkind. We're envious. We're jealous. We don't make time for. We can't stand him or her. We are sinful. And we do this to those we call brother and sister in Christ. Why are you persecuting me? When we sin against each other, we are sinning against Christ himself. The second point is, why am I, can you remember it? Blind. The last part of the passage says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Look at how Saul is entering Damascus now. 
Before this, I can picture him taking long and confident strides on the road to Damascus. The trip was long, but because he was so determined to capture those infidels, it seemed short. Now he gets close to Damascus and he stopped in his tracks by a bright light which makes him blind. Imagine the fear that must have come over him in that moment. Oh no! Oh no! I'm blind! I can imagine him calling out to the men around him and swatting the air to, to feel for them. I can imagine his fear to move even one inch from where he's standing for fear of tripping or falling. I got you. That's what I imagine one of the men saying to him as they grab his hand. I can imagine Saul feverishly grasping for his arm and finding relief for a moment. But a very brief moment as he is once again reminded of the reality that he is still blind. He can't see. We can't just read past these parts. Put yourself there. I can see him being led by the hand of the men. He was just commanding only moments before. Shuffling, uncertain, in fear on the road to Damascus. And I believe that Jesus caused Saul's blindness because he wanted him to have a physical representation of his spiritual state. Verse 8 says that Saul's eyes were opened, but he saw nothing. So to the men around him, his eyes would have appeared to look the same. To Saul himself, he knew how it felt when his eyes were opened and when they were closed. And they were clearly opened but he was blind. It appeared to Saul and to everyone else around him that he was a devout and zealous Jew and that he served God and knew him intimately. But the reality was that he didn't actually know him at all. His eyes were opened, yet he saw nothing. He had religion, but lacked true faith. Now, is that you? Are your eyes open, yet you are blind? Do you have your friends and your family fooled? Are they seeing all of your works like going to church and Bible study and community group and other Christian functions? Do they see that you don't curse and you don't drink? You don't smoke. You don't have premarital sex. You don't watch porn. You don't cheat on your spouse. You don't neglect your kids. You do the speed limit all the time. You never have road rage. You never slack on the job. You always return a shopping cart back to where it's supposed to go. You don't litter. And you recycle. Now, all of these things are good attributes to have, but are they assuming that you're a true believer because of these things when you don't have true faith at all? Have you fooled yourself? If your eyes are open and you can truly see, then you would understand what Romans 3.28 says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is seeing clearly. This is open eyes and 2020 4K vision. To be justified is to be declared righteous in the sight of God. To be justified by faith is to believe that Jesus is the means by which we can be righteous in the sight of God. All of the works I mentioned are good works, but we are justified by faith apart from them not because of them. Do you see the difference? 
Saul's eyes were opened, but he was blind because he followed the law to the T. And he thought that that was what made him righteous before God instead of Christ. The last point point. Why am I blind suddenly? We already established what Saul's mindset was towards the Christians of the early church. He was ravaging the church. He was persecuting it. And all of this was fueled by his blind commitment to and worship of the Jewish laws. We've nailed that idea down pretty good. So looking back to our passage, verse three starts off with now as he went on his way. So I had a plan and he was on the road to fulfill that plan. He was determined and nothing was going to stop him. There's a scripture that points to just how determined Saul was, but it's not about him at all, actually. And it comes from the Old Testament. It's Proverbs 6, verse 6. And that says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Have you ever watched an ant or a colony of ants? The ant is a workhorse, always moving, always active. But have you ever watched an ant try to go from one place to another while carrying something? No matter what you put in its way, it'll go around it, it'll climb it, it's going to get to the other side. It's a determined creature. Saul is very much the same way as that ant. He was determined to go his way. But wait, Gina, I thought you said he was following the religious system of the law and, and that he was submitting himself to his religion. Yes, he was. But any religion that doesn't steer you in the way of the true and living God found in the person of Jesus Christ will ultimately lead you to your own way. A way that has nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with you. A life where you are the king or queen of your own castle, where you determine right and wrong, good and evil for your own self. There's a phrase that I've heard with more and more frequency over the last few years that embodies this idea. It says, you have to live your truth. Live your truth. What is good and right for you, that is what you should live by. You can go your own way, as Fleetwood Mac would say. It's just a quick sidebar, but one of the fundamental issues with that is, is this. What happens when your truth clashes with mine? Right? So what if my truth is to be a serial killer? And your truth is that you want to live as long as possible. <laughs> what, what happens in that situation? Now, that, that's a more extreme case, but to make it more practical, what if my truth is that God made us distinctly man and distinctly woman? And yours is that you decide your gender and sex, regardless of the sex you were born as. Do you see how that could be a problem? Anyway, that's a sermon for another day. I'm going to come back to this right here. So Saul went on his way. But watch this. Look at what happens next. It says, now, as he went on his way, this is verse three, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shown around him suddenly suddenly all of a sudden out of nowhere suddenly a light from heaven shone 
around him. Did you know that the number one cause of car accidents is distracted driving? Speeding, drunk driving, and weather come in second, third, and fourth. But all of us here at Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa Church of God, we're all good drivers. So we don't see the speed limit and we obey all traffic laws. So imagine that you're driving, okay? And you know, you have your hands on nine and three, okay? I know what you're thinking. Isn't it really ten and two? See, if you were a good driver, you would know that it was turning, you know, nine and three a little while ago. So you got to update yourself. Okay. So nine and three. All right. You're driving along, listening to (laughs) K-Love. And you approach an intersection. And your light is green. So you just mosey on down and then bam. Another car T-bones you on your right side. You're shaking up. But thank God you're okay. You come out of your car to check on the other driver, and it's a teenage girl who's sitting there frantically repeating, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was just checking my phone for one second. She was distracted. The police get there, and they have to make a report, so they ask you what happened. And I can almost guarantee that one of these phrases will come out of your mouth. I was minding my own business, and all of a sudden, Officer, I promise you I was doing everything right. I wasn't speeding. I was, I was nine and three. Then I'm crossing the intersection. And then out of nowhere, what are you saying to the officer? You're saying that it happened suddenly. This wasn't in your plans. You weren't looking for this. You had your mind set on something else. And then this happened. As you went on your way, something intervened and interrupted you. Saul was not seeking Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was trying to come against any and everything related to Jesus. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a light from heaven shone around him. Don't let anybody fool you and don't fool yourself. You're no different than Saul. Romans 3 verse 11 says no one seeks God. You weren't looking for him. You are set on your own path, doing your own thing, living in sin. And suddenly a light from heaven appeared. We know that Saul of Tarsus eventually becomes Paul, the apostle. This is what Paul says in Galatians one. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, fathers. In other words, as I went my own way. He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Suddenly a light from heaven Shown around me. In the beginning, when God said, let there be light, light suddenly appeared and it conquered the darkness that was that once was. The light of Christ appears suddenly to us and his death and resurrection conquered the dark sin that once was. And now, like Paul, once Saul, we can say, but by the grace of God, I am 
what I am. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for its sanctifying power. You choose to use broken vessels to carry living water. And I am thankful that I, that we, can be numbered among those vessels. Help us not to ignore the indwelling spirit when he asks us why we continue in sin. Not in a way to condemn us, but to convict us and to lead us into Christ likeness. Help our unbelief, Father. Remind us that you only declare us righteous based on what Christ has done, not what we've done or do. Also, Father, help us to be forever grateful that although we were set on our own path and chasing our own sin, you chose, you decided, you desired to set your affection, grace, and mercy on us suddenly. May we not think of Saul on the road to Damascus and not see ourselves. May your grace ever be on our hearts, our minds, and our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.